Hey everyone, I'm Brendan from Sharesies, a wealth development platform that gives someone with $5 and someone with $5 million the same investment opportunities. Welcome to The Sum of It. We're back with a couple of bonus episodes featuring the wonderful Victoria Devine. Victoria joined us for a recent webinar which covered everything from investing in a downturn, her top budget tips, and a deep dive into ETFs. We loved it so much we thought that you might want to check it out too. But first, we acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island cultures and to elders past, present and emerging. We are recording on Gadigal country and acknowledge that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. All investing involves risk. T's and C's and fees apply for the use of the platform provided by Sharesies Limited. This podcast is created by Sharesies AU PTY Limited as an authorised representative of Sandland Private Wealth PTY Limited. AFL number 337927. The information discussed today is general in nature and is not financial advice. You can watch this whole conversation on our YouTube channel or follow this podcast if you're not already. In the meantime, let's get into it. Welcome to one of my favourite humans, Victoria Devine. Hello, I'm so excited. I'm only your favourite person because we're both cat people, but we'll overlook that and pretend it's got something to do with investing. Yes, cat people forever. I want to start by asking you, what are your investing goals? Yeah, this is a tricky one because I've tried for a very long time to be really consistent with my investments. But if you have been following me on social media, you know that I have been renovating my house. So a lot of our surplus cash has been going towards there and I pulled back on how much I was investing because it just wasn't feasible. So this year I really want to be able to turbocharge that a little bit more than I had. Um, And yeah, plot along with what I have already been doing. I'm quite a conservative investor. I'm not somebody who takes too much risk. I always like to say that I'm an aggressive conservative investor in that I like to have a lot of my assets in the share market, but I also pick really tried, true, blue chip assets because I'm quite conservative in that aspect. So I think, yeah, for me this year, it's all about just getting back on track with the investing goals that I have had. And as always, I think everybody knows this already if you have met me before, but my investing goal is actually just to create financial freedom. I'm not investing towards a particular asset to purchase. I actually just want to create passive income in the future for my family and I, and that's, yeah, the main priority. We're still a very far way off, Brendan, but from little things, big things grow. uh, So I'm excited about it. I love that. I think my investing goal this year is to work out these interest rates raises and how that kind of impacts everything it was like i need to redo my budget it's like when you look at stuff it's like oh that interest rate bumping out you know it's it starting to make scary. a dent. I feel like interest rates are something that we can't have our heads in the sand about anymore. Personally, I have a mortgage and my mortgage repayments have doubled over the last nine months. And we're in the fortunate position where shifting our budget has meant that, you know, we can make that happen, but it's going to be a bit of a stretch if it goes any further. I think that there will be compromise having to come into it. And I know a lot of people are in that position at the moment. So it's a really good conversation to have. And that kind of leads into into the next thing I just want to talk about, which if you follow us on socials, you would have seen me put a few questions out in the last couple of days to test financial literacy. And these questions came from a 2020 survey which looked at financial literacy across Australia, which paints a less than rosy picture. And it shows that the average score of Australian males fell from 4.1 out of 5 to 4. 
But most importantly, the average score of Australian women already lagging way behind men, slipped even further from 3.73 to 3.5. And that gender gap keeps widening. So it's really, that's, that's really disappointing, I think. And in terms of age groups, Australians aged between 15 and 24 had the biggest decline in financial literacy of all age groups, with their mean score dropping from 3.4 to 2.9 out of 5. So that, that feels doom and gloom, but it's not all doom and gloom. There are plenty of resources out there to help people with financial knowledge, like coming to these webinars, articles and go-to guides on the Sheezy's website. We've got She's on the Money podcast, excellent blogs that, that Victoria and the team put out and, and your supportive community and, and also websites like Assets Money Smart. Victoria, as someone who's founded yes. one of the most engaged and financially savvy communities in Australia, are you survived by those stats? And kind of what tips would you give people to help prioritise and stay on top of financial literacy? Uh, I was really upset when I saw that we'd been going backwards. I think mm. having existed in a community like She's on the Money and been in the grateful position where it's grown over the last three years exponentially, I just assumed that also meant that financial literacy across the board was growing. And unfortunately, that's not the case. I do feel like COVID has a lot to play into this in that people are stepping back and I use the term putting our heads in the sand all the time but I think during COVID especially when it came to money and financial literacy we did go backwards and talking about the demographics like if we talk about the age of 15 to 24 they're the ones that had the biggest decline in financial literacy out of all of the age groups and that from my perspective that story really does check out because they have been out of the the real world for the last three years and once yeah. you turn kind of like 13 14 and you're starting to learn about money maybe you got your first job like that's where financial literacy really starts to kick in and i genuinely think that having had covid happen it's kicked us to the curb and kids aren't able to do the financial literacy that they were able to do before like setting up bank accounts and starting to have conversations about superannuation and starting to you know do a little budget and manage things even if it wasn't necessarily a whole family's budget. So I think it's, from my perspective, really disappointing. But the HILDA survey has been done year on year on year. I mean, the last one was done, I think it's done every four years, was done in 2016, and then it was done again in 2020. And hopefully it will be done again in the next few years maybe early would be good given it slipped. But yeah, I, I'm not I'm not surprised, but I am really disappointed because it's kind of heartbreaking to find that we're slipping because especially women, like for, for men to go back one point and women to go back two points, mm. it just means that we are slipping at a far faster rate and that we're not the priority. So I think it just drives me a little bit more aggressively to continue doing what I do. We put out lots of free financial literacy content and this is obviously why we love She's on the Money and being able to have these conversations. But I think that there are a lot of communities that are missing out on these conversations as well. They might not be into podcasting. They might not have access to the internet in the same way that we do. Or they might just be in communities that have conversations about money. They might be, you know, a little bit abstract to that. So I think there's a lot more research to be done to work out how we can fix this and how we can actually help get women in particular up there. It's so true. I like the point you make about, and everyone needs to tell everyone about She's on the Money and all the great resources they have. It's like a community is really there to, to spread. And it's really interesting what you say about COVID. I, if I think back about when I studied, no one's taught really budgeting at school or financial literacy. It's like 
No, but I can do trigonometry. <laughs> exactly. But it's like, and then COVID hit. It's like, when did I find out about that sort of stuff? When I got a job, washing dishes at the cafe, babysitting, walking, walking a dog. Like that's yeah. when you were, oh, actually, I'm paid this amount of money. And if I want to buy that, that means four hours of my time. And you start getting it. But COVID, a lot of people, particularly in that younger age, couldn't get jobs, couldn't go out and learn those things. So there's really lots of, there's lots of gaps of knowledge, I think, which kind of COVID is going to continue to to bring on us, which is something we need to address. I think another question, Victoria, for you, do you think financial literacy has decreased because people are kind of just giving up on the great Australian dream, owning a property, what's the point? You know, the boom, the boom has had it better. It's really tough now and just say check out. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that that's the case. I feel like it's interesting as well because if we look at debt levels, boomers are and have been in more debt than millennials ever have been, especially when it comes to personal debt. I just think that a lot of millennials are feeling really disenchanted. I have this conversation basically on a weekly basis in my or in my community, sorry, about how the the goalposts are shifting and this great Australian dream, unfortunately, mm. isn't going to be the great Australian dream anymore. And we really need to reframe what financial freedom looks like for the coming years, because as much as I would love to think that each and every single person in the country could purchase a home, it's actually just not that feasible. And to be honest, even if I got you to a point where you had a deposit and you were ready to go, that doesn't actually mean it's the best financial decision for you as an individual. And that especially with rising interest rates, that needs to be taken into consideration. We really need to be talking about, okay, well, you've got this dream to have your own home, but what does that actually mean? How does that actually work? And does that actually put you at a disadvantage? And I have historically worked as a financial advisor and had to have these hard conversations with people where, you know, I might sit down with a woman in her late 40s, she's just gone through a divorce. We're talking about, you know, her financial goals. She wants to get back on her feet. I want to help her so much. But then one of her goals is to purchase a, a home and buy a house of her own. But when you do the maths, it actually doesn't stack in her favor. And you kind of have to sit down and go, look, as your advisor, I can't advise that we go down that route because you're going to be at a disadvantage. And I would actually much prefer you to have financial freedom than I would for you to say that you're a home owner. So I think there's a lot to it. I think that we are quite disenchanted as a, a demographic because it is upsetting to think that now property is what, 13, 14 times an average annual salary, whereas historically for our parents, it was five or six. So I think that can be really upsetting, but I think if we can reframe it and go, well, we can actually achieve financial freedom, we can actually achieve things and have a successful life, it doesn't have to mean property, that can be really good. And I think this idea of when in doubt or when feeling a little bit uncomfortable or unsure of your circumstances, zoom out is a good idea. And if we look at the global economy of home ownership, there are so many countries around the world mm. where home ownership is never going to happen for people. In fact, renting is the norm. <clears throat> and I think Australia has a lot to do to catch up to the standards that renting affords people in other countries as well, so that we can have that sense of security as well, because a 12-month lease, if you're never planning on, you know, purchasing your own home, sometimes isn't enough nowadays. Yeah, that's so true. And, and just goes to the point of like talking to someone who's licensed to provide financial advice, who can 
give you really impartial advice on actually what's best for your future and talk around those options with you is really good. And yeah, the great Australian dream should be different for everyone depending on their, their circumstances. Thanks for that, Victoria. The next question that people were asking us about is like, you know, how and when to review your finances. So it's the start of, start of the year, lots of people have New Year's resolutions to set out a plan to review their finances to do certain things. We wrote a blog about that, so you can read it later. But Victoria, you're great at this and explaining it in a way that really resonates with people. So I'm really keen to hear from you what you think reviewing your finances means in practice. How often should we do it? What sort of mix should we have between you know savings, investings, and, and fun? Yeah. So when it comes to reviewing your finances, there's no set, this is how you should do it. It can be one of those things where we actually have to sit down and my favorite topic, and I promise if you're like me, you might want a glass of wine to do this because it's going to be a long evening or a nice cup of tea or just like sitting comfortably on the couch. And I know I care deeply about the environment, but I find that the best way to do this is honestly to print your bank statements out and then get two different color highlighters and then highlight your discretionary items versus the things that you can't change. And when we go through it like that, we're not trying to judge ourselves. We're not trying to look at it and go, oh my gosh, Brendan, I spend so much on this, this, and this. What we're trying to do is get a really good understanding of what a budget is, because a budget is not aspirational. A budget is literally what's coming in and then what's going out, being able to understand that. And I think too many times we sit down to do a budget and we go, all right, let's do a budget. I know I earn $60,000 a year. So you break that down and then you start allocating it and you say, I know my rent is $250 a week. Do you know what I want to do? I want to spend $100 a week on groceries. And that's quite aspirational because we haven't fact-checked what you're actually spending. If you're spending closer to $200 to slash that in half and go, all right, well, Brendan, now you have to spend less than half. That involves significant lifestyle change to make that happen and it's not sustainable. And what we need to do is take that judgment away and go, all right, what we need to do is look at what are you actually spending? Oh, you're spending $192. All right. Are you comfortable with that? And you're going, yeah, I just, I'm such a foodie. It's all I care about. I don't want to change my budget when it comes to food, but look over there. That's my gym membership I don't use. Or those are a few streaming services that I really don't log on to. Maybe we can cut back there, or maybe we can cut back in a different area that actually aligns to your values. So the first thing I would do is that and really understand what's coming in and what's going out. And then regardless of whether you've got debt or not, I think that every single person needs to have an emergency fund. So an emergency fund is your get out of jail free card. It's the ticket that makes sure that if something unexpected comes up, you can get out of any circumstance in any situation without being stressed. It also means if an unexpected cost comes up and you're already in debt, you don't have to then rely on that debt cycle to get you out of that circumstance. And that can be really disheartening where you might have a $5,000 credit card that you're paying off and you've only got like $600 to go. And then Rego pops up and you're like, oh my gosh, this is the worst. I was feeling so good about this. And all of a sudden I've got to put $1,100 on my credit card again, because I just don't have the cash. So regardless of whether you're in debt, I do genuinely believe that people should have an emergency fund because it creates creates good financial habits, but also means you can get out of any circumstance 
or situation that you don't want to be in. And then we're really looking at debt. We want to smash down all of our personal debts and make sure we understand what that looks like and make sure that we don't actually fall back into the trap of getting into more debt. And it can be quite stressful when we look at it because we judge ourselves and we go, oh, my gosh, I'm so silly or I'm so dumb for getting into this. And as somebody who has literally had more than $30,000 worth of personal debt, I can talk from experience that that's exactly what we do. I buried my head in the sand and did not want to talk about it. I would literally tell people, no, 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 I've never been in debt before while I was in debt because it was, to me, really embarrassing. But had I had those conversations, I just know I would have been in a better position and people actually really support you. So trying to get out of debt is the first thing I would do. And then understanding that budget side well, how much surplus do you have? What are your goals for investing? I think one of the biggest questions I get, <clears throat> one of the biggest questions I get, Brendan, is what should I invest in? I go, hold up, hold up, hold up. What, what are we investing for? How long are we investing? What are your goals? What are your values? Like what kind of platform are we looking for? And I think that we need to understand our goal for investing before we actually dive headfirst and go, oh, should I get this ETF or should I buy a direct share or what does this look like? And I feel like too often that's the sexy bit, like that's the fun bit, right? Picking what you're doing, yeah. being able to tell people. So understand what that means understand the the time frame on which you're going to invest are we investing every week are we investing every month are we investing every quarter what does that look like and if you're based in australia please don't forget about your superannuation if you're an employed person with a tax file number you have a super account and you are already an investor and you need to care about that money that money is your money that you have complete control over that is creating financial freedom for your future all good points. I think that emergency fund one is super important, like back to being a cat parent. And if you've got very little friends in your lives, I mean, every time our cats go to the vet, they want to take another couple of teeth out. And wow, teeth at the vet, that's expensive. I didn't realise um, how expensive cat teeth were. And like small flex from cat mum over here, my cat Bailey is nearly 12 and he still has all of his teeth. But, but... He gets his teeth cleaned every year. And I didn't realise that's like $450 because they have to be sedated to have that done. What? What? No, should, have, should have been a vet. I know, right? They make bank. Yeah. But I love my job, so I don't want to be a vet. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Oh. Shares his management team. Please stop listening. <laughs> exactly. They're always listening. <laughs> Another question we get about, which is a really valid question, I think, is like how do you invest in a, in a market downturn? So again, we've got another article for you there, but let's hear from Victoria. Anything that you should do differently when reviewing your finances during a potential recession, you know, the markets go up and down and sideways, we never know what's going to happen, or when the economy feels like it's on a downward trend, any kind of comments from you? Yeah, now is the time to really top up your emergency fund. And I'm not here to try and scare you and say, oh my gosh, top up your emergency fund. The world's going to trash. It's actually just going to give you a lot more peace of mind. We never know what's going to happen. We already know that the cost of living is going up here in Australia and that can be quite stressful. So knowing you've got a little extra cash hidden away in case something pops up or things are a bit more expensive than you had anticipated is never going to be a bad thing. The other thing I want to talk about, 
when it comes to investing in a downturn is this idea that it's scary and fearful and that, you know, you're going to miss out. And we learned a lot during the GFC when jokes on you guys, I was actually still at school, but I I can learn from history. (laughs) But during the GFC, which was in 2008, 2009, there were obviously a lot of people who lost a lot of money for a lot of a lot of different reasons. But one of the things that happened during that time was really fearful people who had investments and maybe didn't fully comprehend how the investment world worked. And what they did was they maybe had, for example, 10 shares and each share that they bought was worth a dollar. So they had a share portfolio worth $10. And then over the next you know few months, they started to see it crash. And they got really, really stressed because they're like, oh my God, gosh, my share portfolio is now worth $5 instead of the $10 it was. What do I do? Do I just take all of my money out right now? Because if I do that, then I'm just, quote, saving what I've still got left. And that's actually the wrong mindset to have because what they weren't seeing was they still actually had 10 shares. They never had less than 10 shares. And that $5 valuation isn't actually what you have, Brendan. It's what it would be worth if you sold it that day. So anytime you log into your Sharesies platform and you might be looking at it going, wow, it's a bit down. No, it's a bit down if you were to sell it today and crystallize that loss and actually accept it. And a lot of the time, and please don't get me wrong, as an ex-financial advisor who invests personally, I still get anxious when I look at my investment portfolio. Oh no, like it's going down. And then I kind of have to slap myself a little bit and be like, Victoria, you're meant to know better than this. And you do. But it's human nature to worry when something seems off. Like it's not normal to feel cool when a market is going down. But what we have to do is overlay education and go, no, I understand that over the time frame of my lifetime, I'm actually going to see seven market crashes. Like the average human being in 2023 is going to see seven market crashes in their lifetime. It's going to happen it's going to return. Everything will be okay. The point of in, well, the thing that we want to talk about when investing in a market downturn is actually what opportunity can we seize? What can we do here? If you're in the lucky financial position where, you know, we might be headed into a recession and you still have a solid income, you still have a really safe job and you do have some surplus cash. Well, what can you be doing to make the most of that at this point in time? It's funny because if you went to the shops and Brendan, you were like, oh, there's a 20% off sale. You'd be like, oh, great. Like maybe we'll just have a look. I wasn't planning on buying anything, but it's 20% off. That's a pretty good deal. Like no, no plans. But when the same thing happens in the share market and the market's off 20%, people lose their minds instead of seeing an opportunity to purchase something that might be undervalued. So from my perspective, investing during a market downturn is an opportunity, but we also need to make sure that we are financially stable and that our financial house is in order before we go trying to seize an opportunity. Because the last thing I want you to do is invest in something that you then have to pull out because you're financially stretched. Exactly. And there's this beautiful chart by Vanguard that shows... Oh, it's so sexy, yeah. It's like, I'm going to get it tattooed on my on my arm. No, you um, can't. It updates every year and it's interactive and it's like the best thing in the entire world. And it's it's awesome because it shows like it's 100 years or maybe a little bit more of 100 years and it shows every crash or correction or everything from the Great Depression to the to GFC to 9-11 to every sort of war and COVID when it hit. 
and it kind of shows the the, the dips when when you're in them and it's down 30 percent. you go wow that feels you know i'd open my shares account and see it in the red and it's like but you look at that and and as you say you zoom out and you're like actually the graph increases year on year and if you look at the average return in the share market over 10 years it's probably about 9.8 percent including dividends but in some years it's going to be negative in some years it's going to be more than that but over time if you can keep regularly investing don't worry too much about the price i love your your analogy about if something's on sale and you've got you're in a position where you can invest a little bit more because you've got everything else sorted your emergency fund and everything it's not bad to keep that like 50 bucks a week investing or 10 dollars or something because over time that compounding power of of investment returns is is magic and so if you can just keep doing that not get worried you know i think i saw a warren buffett quote in the in the comments you know when other people are fearful that's the time to kind of get in into the market like there's opportunity and if you think a company you know if you if you love a company if you buy their products if you know or everyone else buys their products and the share market price is a bit lower than usual that price remember is just people you know buying and selling it's not the actual value of that company and if you've got things that you know management's great the economy they set up the economy it's like it could be could be a decent thing to invest in so don't be fearful i think is the no, absolutely. And it, it it's insane as well. We have started saying in the She's on the Money community, when in doubt, zoom out and look at the bigger picture yeah. and that can really help. But it, it's funny as well talking to first-time investors because obviously we're meant to zoom out and they'll have a look at their portfolio and be like, oh, what's the point? Like I've been doing this for six months and I've only seen a return of X. It's like, I need to stop you there and I don't want to be condescending or rude or disheartening, but, like, you can't do that. Like, you can't just look at six months and think, oh, it's going well, I'll stick to it, or it's it's not going well at all, I'm going to give up. You actually need to have in the market, and this is going to be overwhelming for some people, but to really see compounding interest take effect, it takes seven years. Seven. It's the rule of 72. And I usually say to my clients, like, it's going to take about 10 years to like get there. But after that, it really, really compounds. Like it's going to go from 12 grand to, you know, 50 to 100. And you're going to see it grow in a way that you can't even comprehend. And I think that the share market is an interesting concept as well, because, you know, talking about compound interest, it's one of my favorite things in the entire world, because it's your money that your money makes, and then your money Mm. makes money on that. And again, that's really sexy. But humans think in a really linear way, like one plus one equals two, two plus two equals four, et cetera. Like we only just think in this way, whereas the share market, when we start to actually take compound interest into effect, it goes like this. And we can't comprehend that as humans because we don't have a brain structure that comprehends that. And I think that that's really interesting to take into account as well, because so many times you're trying to explain the importance of investing. And they're like, yeah, so you're saying I'll have double in 10 years? I'm like, yes, but we need to even look bigger than that because in 30 years it's not double anymore it's not triple it's way more than that so anyway as you know i could go on and on and on about this forever because i'm obsessed with this topic but i will hand back to you brendan (laughs) but it is really magic like i mathematically know compounding returns but i just like you say the human brain can't comprehend it i think i'll get this wrong but warren buffett made know 99 percent of his fortune in the last five years of his life because those investments he made and he's worth a lot of money but that was like 30 40 years of just solid investing in companies where where he he saw the value and then it's in this last bit where it's just gone bang and it's like keep the habit up 
make sure you've got an emergency fund so you don't need to crystallise any of those losses or, or gains or anything and just keep keep it going. It really is. Like, and play with investment. Yeah, play with compound interest calculators as well. Yeah. Like the Money Smart one is one of my favourites just because it's a government-based, like, platform that everybody kind of knows they can go to and it's safe. But it's interesting being able to go, all right, well, what happens if I invest $50 a month? Mm. And you see over 10 years it might look like this, but then over 30 years you go, wow, this starts to really change people's lives. And I was having this conversation around superannuation that if you're in a circumstance where, you know, you've got an extra $50 per month to spare. As a female, we actually retire with about 300 or just under $300,000 in superannuation, which is not nearly enough. But mm. if you are in your 30s and you started investing $50 a month, you can actually double what you retire with. If that's not putting the power back into your hands, I don't know what is. And I think a lot of people would just go, well, $50 not enough, like that's not going to change my life. But over the long term, like the power of that is insane from my perspective. Yeah, I agree. And then some some guides for us on if you loved what you heard then, sign up for our go-to guides on how to invest in a market downturn. That QR code will take you to the link where we'll send you some emails on all that or you can jump on the website and pop up, pop in and sign up for those. So, Victoria... Again, your budgeting journal, everyone go out and buy it. Buy two. I'm biased, it's great. <laughs> that was the first part of our bonus episodes with Victoria Devine. If you're not following the sum of her podcast, make sure you do so on Apple, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app so you can hear episode two and get Victoria's top budgeting tips in episode three, which is a deep dive into ETFs. To learn more about investing in the Sharesies platform, go to sharesies.com.au. If you've got an investing question for our panel, direct message us on our socials at AU. We'll answer your question in a future episode or on social. All investing involves risk. T's and C's and fees apply for the use of the platform provided by Sharesies Limited. This podcast is created by Sharesies AU PTY Limited as an authorised representative of Sandland Private Wealth PTY Limited. I have a cell number 337927. Views expressed by individuals and guests on this podcast are their own and not the views or opinions of Sharesies.